Welcome to PTBC Podcast, where we will be speaking about innovation, technology, growing your business, and maximizing your entrepreneurial potential. Let's get down to business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the PTBC Podcast. This is Slava, and I'm joined by Justin. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a guest that started it all for us. He's our educator, our colleague, and the one who teaches the business curriculum at U of T, Alan McDonald. Alan is currently the Director of Student Health and Wellness at Ryerson University. He's the Innovative Business Practice Management Theme Lead Lecturer at the University of Toronto. And he's also the current president of the OPA, the Ontario Physiotherapy Association. Experienced yet humble, Alan has extensive clinical and administrative leadership experience in both the inpatient and outpatient academic healthcare settings, with an ability to both influence and direct large interprofessional clinic programs. In addition to receiving his uh, Master's of Science in Physical Therapy, Alan also completed an MBA in uh, Health Industry Management and Business Consulting at the Schulich School of Business. Shout out to York University. (laughs) (laughs) A quick uh, fun fact about Alan, he practiced as a physiotherapist for three months in Iqaluit, Nunavut. All right, it's time to get down to business. So, Alan, how are you doing today? I'm very good, very good. Just uh, a little shocked about what's going on in Raptors land. We lost uh, a true and blue Raptor, but uh, otherwise, all things good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's uh, going to be a great move long term, but we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> um, so, Alan, it's uh, definitely a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And uh, we want to talk to you about a couple of things like. Um, uh, your MBA, as well as some of the things in the future of business and physiotherapy. But to kick us off, I wanted to ask you a question as uh, to what drove you to be inclined or interested in business and healthcare and uh, in physiotherapy particularly? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, you know, I was pretty lucky uh, fairly early on in my career. Uh, I, I landed a an interesting role at Toronto Western Hospital here in Toronto, where um, I worked for a company called uh, Rehabilitation Solutions. They're now called Altum Health, and it was a really interesting. Uh, it's an interesting job, and and they're they're still doing great work. Where we were, um, we were a company that was owned by the hospital. So uh, some hospitals use a different model; they rent their space to uh, large for-profit corporate corporations. But we were. Uh, we were a company that was owned by the hospital, and our mandate was to help uh, injured workers and people hurt by, in vo- motor vehicle accidents. And, and all the revenue that we generated went back into the hospital. So it's kind of this interesting, um, you know, for-profit, not-for-profit blend uh, in a large uh, downtown academic center. And uh, really, right time, right place. I was working with uh, great people, great surgeons, great, great uh, clinicians, and great management, and uh, uh, had the opportunity to help grow one of their uh, – one of their programs into from a small but mighty program into one of their larger programs and got promoted to clinical practice leader and, uh, and program manager within the span of a few years and just discovered that um, discovered a few things. So first of all, the business leadership administrative aspect of rehabilitation was interesting for a number of reasons um, that uh, clinicians didn't speak business and business people, administration people often didn't speak clinicians. So I just thought there'd be a good spot, a good opportunity for a clinician who had an interest in both to try and fit in and, and make a positive difference. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, just, just um, discovered that there really was a, an incredible opportunity, especially in the rehabilitation space for people with a so-called business background to have a positive impact. So I mean, that's really, certainly if you would have asked me early in my career, you know, is business slash administration slash leadership something that I was interested in? I probably would have said no. That's just something that uh, emerged over time. Um, right place, right time. So, Alan, um, you mentioned that you were promoted to a program leader a couple of years into practice. Was this kind of what motivated you to pursue your MBA in the first place? Or what else, what other factors kind of influenced your decision to pursue that MBA? Yeah, there are, it's, there are a couple of different factors. So definitely the, the promotion into a leadership position, you know, responsibility of a, you know, multi-million dollar budget, um, you know, people responsibility for, you know, 20, 30 people. I discovered pretty early on that I had some pretty, uh, pretty significant gaps in, uh, in knowledge, skills, competencies in that area. So I uh, was trying to sort through how to fill those gaps, you know, so like we do as, as good clinicians, we kind of sort through 
you know, what type of clinician we want to be, what, what kind of folks we want to help, and then try our best to fill that, uh, fill those gaps of knowledge with postgraduate training. So I just kind of that, that, that mindset, that approach to lifelong learning then translated to management leadership. So, so knew, knew very early on that I had lots of gaps that I had to fill as a 30 year old manager of a large program. And then just right again, right time, right place was admitted into a, uh, uh, an internal leadership program at UHN at the University Health Network that was taught by the York, uh, the Schulich School of Business people. It was an internal leadership program, 18 months, nurses, non-nurses, physiotherapists, all kinds of people that was taught by many of the MBA professors. And uh, I, I liked Schulich's approach. I liked the professors. It made a lot of sense to me. So I started looking into if an MBA made sense. You know, I think I've spoken to maybe all three of you about uh, kind of looking at the three different options, you know, like the um, the Masters of Health Administration, all the different options that were out there. And the MBA seemed to be the one that had, uh, at the time anyway, I can't speak to uh, the cost, uh, like the payback or the cost effectiveness these days, but back back when I was uh, looking mm-hmm. at the options, the, the cost effectiveness was still there, especially for the Schulich program. It was a great bang for your buck back in 2009. So that, um, yeah, so definitely the, the, the exposure to gaps in my knowledge as a young manager, you know, the exposure to the Schulich people and kind of looking at the different options that's, I landed on the MBA at the time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, uh, judging by your comments and sounds like you really had a positive experience doing your MBA and, uh, you learned a lot of things. So we were wondering, um, what were the top five things that you learned from completing this MBA that you already didn't know from practice? Yeah. When I saw this question, I was thinking about asking it to change it to the top two, maybe. I'll give you a top three. How about that? And then we'll see if we'll see if I stumble on another two. So, so definitely um, uh, one of the, one of the discoveries, and this is, this is, this was early on. Um, it was really encouraging. Um, uh, and it was through, through a really interesting opportunity at Schulich where they, they have, um, they call it the York Consulting Group. And it's this, um, you know, it's a, it's a recommendation that I have to anybody, whether, whatever kind of postgraduate training someone's going through is, is look, try, try, try your best to look for real world experience. Just like we, you know, we're, we're blessed in the physiotherapy world where we, it's a requirement. We need to go out on practicums, but that's not necessarily the case for every MBA program or every postgraduate program. So um, the, the, the supplemental training that I that I took on at um, Schulich was called the York Consulting Group, where it was a uh, student-led, under faculty supervision, uh, consulting group that actually did real-life work, uh, real-life work for small to medium-sized businesses, not-for-profit businesses that couldn't afford the big guys, um, and they'd come to us and contract us to do real-life work. So that the um, the discovery doing that work was first of all I was hired with no business background at all, and uh, what they told me was the the um, through the interview process, it was clear that, uh, you know, I had um, uh, some, uh, they called them cases in business school, but I had the ability to work through a case and come to a logical conclusion. I attributed that to my physiotherapy training. You know, when you think about it, what do we do? We listen to somebody's story. We, uh, we ask questions, and then we develop a hypothesis. We call it developing a, you know, developing a diagnosis, you develop a hypothesis, then you test the hypothesis with with treatment and then you see you you, uh, you assess the outcome and what, what do you do as a consultant you do almost the, the same thing um so it was a it was a really interesting discovery early on that that uh that what is sometimes thought of as as highly technical and um and specialized skills so learning how to be a physiotherapist the many of the skills and competencies can be translated into other settings that was that was a uh interesting learning early on i try and share that with as many physiotherapy and healthcare students that i can um, the other one, um, the other uh, um, interesting discovery was uh, um, around the uh, the actual approach that some of the professors took um, uh, with their work, where um, they, not to get too technical, but they used a, an, an al- a little bit of an alternative to the typical business approach, where uh, where they used a, a complex adaptive systems theory to business as opposed to the traditional uh, machine-like approach to business. So, and the way they explain it, the way I think about it is, um, instead of treating a company or a business like a machine, where you know, I put in a certain amount of inputs, I expect, I expect uh, some sort of results, and then that generates cash or results, uh, organizations and businesses are more like ecosystems, and um, they're living and breathing things. And it isn't just about inputting in 
stuff into a machine. It's really about uh, um, developing an ecosystem around you. So it's I'm, I'm probably not explaining as clearly as <laughs> as I uh, <laughs> as I could, but it's a, it's just a different approach to management, a different approach to business that these Schulich people were uh, were um, were were curious to uh, to help us understand, and and it was uh, it was something different that I hadn't been exposed to uh, originally. And then, you know, last but not least, um, the best course that I took there was was taught by uh, Dr. Joel Shallow. It's a family doctor from Chicago, and they flew. He taught international health systems, and I I sat in a classroom Saturday and Sunday for three weekends because they flew him in and flew him out. They could only run the class on the weekends. The best course I ever taken, and he helped me understand that it's possible to be both a great clinician and a great business person at the same time, that they're not mutually exclusive, that just because you're a great business person doesn't mean you can't be a great ethical uh, clinician. Because, you know, mark my words, family physicians in the U.S. especially are entrepreneurs. They're entrepreneurs, they're family, they're, they, they run a family business. And, um, and he, that wasn't his objective. His objective was to teach us about uh, international health systems, but that came through in the way that he thought about his role in the healthcare system and his patients, and and then his his role um, building out a, a, a basically a small to mid sized business in downtown Chicago. So, those were my three the three uh, stand up memories for me from Schulich. So, Alan, you mentioned that um, being a physio first really helped with your critical thinking and your ability to reason through problems in your MBA. But how has doing an MBA impacted your career and would you recommend it for physios who are planning to engage in business practice? That's a good question. You know, I, I have to say I, I do, this is a question I get pretty regularly. Um, um, and it's a, it, it's a, tr- it's a great question. It's a tricky question to answer because the it's, it's often so this decision is often so context specific. Um, you know, uh, so how it's impacted my career um, you know, like it or not, uh, downtown Toronto, uh, and then the GTA in general, it really is, I, I refer to it. I'm not sure if it's, it's the best way to refer to, but it, it is a hyper-educated market in downtown Toronto. Um, and all I mean by that is that, uh, um, you know, that a, a master's, an M, an MD, an MHA, an MBA, a PhD, uh, seems to be the entry level requirement now for management um, in downtown Toronto, where um, you know you talk to other people in other centers. I, I remember when I started, you know, an entry level management position, so a clinical manager, um, uh, those sorts of positions, you could you could get away with working towards a master's or um, some sort of other leadership certification, and then and then you know the the company or the hospital or the organization might help support your learning. Now, I mean, I, I saw I saw a job posting just a few months ago where. Um, you know, entry level uh, quality uh, quality improvement consultants. They're looking for a master's of engineering. You know, and these are entry level positions at a, at a downtown hospital. So, um, so mm-hmm. how it's impacted my career? It's uh, uh, an MBA, a master's, some sort of leadership, formal leadership training. Um, I think these days in a major center is a is a prerequisite to entering the the leadership stream. Uh, so. Um, it would have been difficult to get this job at Ryerson not difficult. It would have been impossible to get this job at Ryerson without some sort of uh, formal leadership training, um, not leadership training, but some sort of formal certification or, or um, uh, formal uh, education leadership. Um, and do I recommend it for physios uh, business practice? I, you know, you do not need an MBA to open your own business at all. Um, you, you'll talk to them, I'm sure during the, the life of your podcast and, in your conversations, you'll have many business owners who will tell you that, and I'll, I'll agree with that 100%. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, to make your way and navigate your way through a large corporation, um, to met, to um, to be able to figure out relationships and and different types of uh, uh, key competencies in, a, in large corporations, I do think that formal training does come in that does come into play. Doesn't necessarily have to be an MBA, but uh, I do think that the formal the formal business training can be helpful. Again, not a not a prerequisite. Depends on the company. Um, so again, it depends on what kind of business you're thinking about, what kind of impact you're trying to have on your community and 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 on your with your patients. Um, but an MBA is definitely not required to get into business, um, but it will probably help you navigate the at minimum the the large corporate world and 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 probably some other settings as well. 
Yeah, that's definitely a great question, a great recommendation because you approached it from a couple of positions. One is to uh, a recommendations to physios who are looking to become clinic owners, but other physios who are looking to take leadership roles in the more of a public health sector or larger corporations. Um, just to wrap up this discussion about an MBA, um, you've provided some great insight, but we were wondering about some of the logistics around doing an MBA. So I understand you did it at uh, the Schulich uh, School of Business and you said it took about 18 months. Could you give us a rough estimate about how much the program cost and how big of a time commitment was it through those 18 months? Was it part-time or full-time? And are you able to carry on working while doing an MBA? Yeah, I can. De- yeah, it's a it's another great question. So I think um, this is another one that's context specific. The cost has changed. You know, I think I'd be giving you, <laughs> you and anyone listening, a disservice mm-hmm. if I quoted what I what I paid back in two thousand nine because it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cost, you know, cost will vary school to school. Uh, what I can tell you though, um, mm-hmm. you know, I did I did um, sit down and you know I did. So we're two thousand eighteen, right? So two thousand nine, I did sit down when I was thinking about investing all that time and, and studying for the, uh, for the GMAT and, you know, is this something I really want to do and, and did a, did a payback calculation, very rudimentary, very rudimentary payback calculation. So in other words, you know, I'm taking these 18, I, I did 24 months, but I'm taking these 24 months off. Um, you know, what do I, very rough, what do I expect to earn without an MBA over the next, you know, 15 to 20 years? What do I expect mm-hmm. to earn with an MBA over the next 15 to 20 years? And what's the payback and is it worth it? And it was, and as a 30, what, what was I, 32 year old, it was just, it was just there for a w- very well. Um, and, and you have to keep in mind, I'm, I was going to be in healthcare, you know, maybe in consulting where the salaries would, would be higher. I'm not, I'm not a banker. I'm not in this, you know, this, uh, this world where, uh, where, where, where mm-hmm. salaries, where salaries will be massively impacted by, by an NBA and be able to climb up a corporate ladder, you know, healthcare, it's, there's, there's a different type of uh, compensation scheme. So in another sector, it would be different. The payback would be different. Um, but it, anyway, long story short, it was just it was just there. Um, uh, the payback was just there. So I'd strongly recommend anybody thinking about doing that to, to really sit down and either it, I mean, I'd be happy to connect with somebody, but connect with someone who's done who's done it or or knows how to do that payback calculation and uh, and sit down and do it because I I don't think an eighty ninety thousand dollar MBA would have been worth it for me as a thirty two year old. Um, so I'll just say I'll have that to say, and I certainly didn't pay eighty to nine thousand dollars for my MBA. That's for sure. Um, and then logistically, yeah. So the, the real appeal of Schulich was uh, you could switch between full time and part time. Uh, so I started as a part time student um, in the first semester, so that would have been the fall of two thousand nine. Was absolutely miserable for the entire semester. I was working full time, a, a pretty intense job, and then going to school twice a twice a week, and then you know doing whatever homework I had to do without a family. Um, so I, there's, and I was still miserable. So without a family, without, without uh, family obligations, I was still, still miserable working, doing it part-time. So I just made the decision. <laughs> I couldn't do it. So I went, I, I switched to full-time. So I took all of 2010 off. I was really lucky rehabilitation solutions. Uh, um, uh, they supported me and, and allowed me to work as a physiotherapist for 20 to 25 hours a week, which is amazing. I'll, I'll always be thankful for them to, for setting that up for me. Um, and then went back and finished part-time in 2011 in the last, in the first four months, 2011, as was miserable again. So part-time was not going to be for me, but that's going to be different depending on everybody, depending on the goals. What are your goals with the program? Are you going to do the York consulting group? Do you want A's and A pluses? Are you okay with the B's and B pluses? Um, there's all kinds of, all kinds of, uh, decisions, decisions, that, all kinds of factors that would go into those decisions. Um, uh, but part-time, I mean, the people I tip, I tip my hat to the people who, who do take three or four years and do it part-time. It's a, it's a long haul and it's um, it takes a lot of commitment and a lot of time management to get that done. But lots of people do it. Lots of people do it. There were lots of people in my, uh, in my cohort that were, that were nowhere near as miserable as I was uh, uh, getting through it. Um, so I think it just depends. There's all kinds of things that, that factor into those types of decisions. So Alan, just to build off of Slav's comment earlier, um, I know some of my colleagues who are in different healthcare professions are looking to potentially pursuing their MBA in the future after they graduate. So one of my colleagues, he's in dental school right now and he's looking to potentially pursue his MBA. What are some similarities or differences 
in terms of getting the MBA, opening up an own practice, whether that be physio, whether that be dental, whether that be for physicians. Could you speak a little bit more towards that? Oh yeah, I mean, we there were all kinds of all kinds of different professionals in our in our cohort. The most common, actually, the most common professional group were the engineers. Uh, the engineers were, I would say, by far, they were the most common professional group. So, by just by profession, I mean either a member of a college or a you know a member of a of a professional uh, some sort of professional regulatory group. Um, and no, there were dentists there, there were physicians there, there were nurses there. Um, uh, all kinds of different groups, all kinds. I, I don't think it would be limited to one or the other. I mean, the, you know, the, the dentists, the dentists would be um, similar, similar to pharmacists and, and physiotherapists where they would work in multiple locations, but dentists even more so, they work on more of the for-profit side. So you'd think that a dentist who would, uh, who would be thinking about setting up a network of clinics or looking to incorporate and, and setting up a, um, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, I'm not sure what that would look like on the, in the dental uh, sector, but uh, yeah, I mean, I could see that being a great fit for a dentist, for a pharmacist, again, looking to either work their way through a, through a large corporation or, um, or uh, looking to set up their own shop. I could see, I could see a fit for all kinds of different professions. It certainly wasn't limited to doctors and nurses, that's for sure. And uh, thank you for commenting uh, to that side of things and uh, all your great uh, information about the MBA. But I just wanted to shift gears a little bit. And because you're the president of the OPA, as well as uh, teaching us some of the more global things about the healthcare in our UFT curriculum, we would just wanted to ask you, how do you think the healthcare sector and the business of physiotherapy particularly will evolve in the next uh, five years? Yeah, I mean, I was glad I was glad you asked this question. And just cut me off if I start going on a bit too much about this, because I've been thinking a lot about it uh, uh, since taking mm-hmm. over the role of the OPA president in April. I, I mean, the, the three that I scribbled down here, just getting ready to speak to you guys today. One I, ro- I wrote about extensively in my, uh, in my address in the OPA uh, newsletter this month, the uh, consolidation, mergers and a consolidation across healthcare sector. Let's talk a little bit about that. But then also um, technology, obviously, you know, automation, mm-hmm. uh, artificial intelligence. I can talk a little bit about that. And then, you know, in Ontario specifically, not sure, you know, who's, who's out there listening to your podcast, but, you know, we've, we've had a pretty important re- election recently, um, change of mandate, you know, government that was in, in power for, you know, 10, 12, 15 years. And now we have a, a net new government whose slogan is Ontario is open for business. So I think that's something, and it looks like they'll probably get at least, you know, they have one mandate, but probably at least one more. So we probably need to be paying close attention to what these folks are saying. So that's um, it's going to be an interesting opportunity in Ontario and could leak into Canada too. So I mean, I'll talk about those three things. The, the first one is consolidation, you know, mergers and consolidation across the healthcare sector. So this has been happening for a number of years. So this is this idea that, um, um, you know, large academic hospitals here downtown, um, so Mount Sinai being the being one of the, one of them, which is now called Sinai Health Systems, where uh, a large academic hospital, Mount Sinai, merged with a large rehabilitation hospital, Bridgepoint Health, and a and a small to medium sized home care provider called Circle of Care. So now they're one large health corporation that that really can help um, a client through a broader spectrum of care. If you think about it, um, so that's one example of consolidation. Another one is the family doctors. Family doctors, uh, you know, back in the '90s and early 2000s, it was super common for single uh, family doctor offices to be to, to exist on their own. And, and uh, over the past 10 to 15 years, many family doctor's offices have consolidated into these family, large family health teams, you know, 50, 60 doctors plus. There's a lot, very large family health team in, in, uh, in downtown Toronto, which is 50, 60 doctors, very large family health team in, in Hamilton, 50, 60 plus doctors. So you've got consolidation mergers happening in the primary care sector for for decade plus now, we've had large, you know, rehabilitation corporations uh, acquiring small uh, physiotherapy clinics uh, through mergers and acquisitions. So you know you have all these all these um, factors. So you know, patients uh, and and payers wanting a more integrated experience. You know, you, they want more efficiency, so doing more with less less money. This big fo- focus on quality of care. So you've had all of this happen you've had the consolidation happen across organizations so that, you know, the question I think health professions should be asking themselves is when and if 
this consolidation across organization, organizations will leak its way into the health professions. You know, we mentioned, we were talking about dentists earlier. I, I'm probably going to misquote this, but I think there are four different regulated uh, co colleges for the dental profession. You have the dentists, the hygienists, the denturists. So you, why are there three or four different dental colleges, if you think about it? Um, you have, you know, these large interprofessional um, teams providing care, which, you know, by some accounts, there's some evidence to suggest that these large interprofessional teams provide better care. But from the patient's perspective, is there really that much difference in, in what in the care that's being provided across the different professionals? So I guess when I'm challenging the profession, I think about these days is, you know, we've seen consolidations, consolidation happen across uh, different areas of the health sector. Is it possible that consolidation could start to happen across the health professions? That's something I think we should be keeping our minds on. And that would open up all kinds of different opportunities uh, if we if we're ready. So, Alan, definitely um, it was a great point about uh, collaboration and um, making those partnerships of physios with other healthcare professionals like doctors and dentists, pharmacists. And that's definitely the way healthcare is going. But I believe you had a couple of more points to mention on the, on the future of the healthcare sector and the business and physiotherapy in general. Yeah, I mean the other the other thing we've talked a lot about as a board in the Ontario Physiotherapy Association, and I, you know, I, I'm sure I brought it up to to the, the class at the University of Toronto is this just this idea of um, uh, where does emerging technology fit into our practice as physiotherapists? So you know, business intelligence, artificial intelligence, automation. So you know, what mm -hmm. what type of activities that we take on as a physiotherapist are most amenable to being replaced by technology? which activities are more amenable to being aug augmented by technology, which sometimes gets forgotten. You know, a lot of people talk about what, what if anything will be replaced in our practice by technology. Important to keep our eyes on that, but what will be augmented? And then, and then I also think equally interesting is what will, what activities will be immune to the disruption of technology. So the, you know, the, the, um, the report out of uh, the Brookfield people who, uh, who have this interesting Mr. Robot report, and they talk about the, the potential impact of automation on the, on the professions they they highlight they highlight key key um competencies and and uh and focus and key activities that probably will be immune to technology for the foreseeable future so things like perception and creativity and those interpersonal skills um very hard to mimic uh and replicate the in interpersonal nature of what's going on between us right now right this conversation the, the nuances of a conversation the nuances of a relationship that interprofessional relationship probably probably relatively immune to the disrupt, disruption of technology. So to me, the key message for me and, and when I talk to my colleagues uh, around the province is, you know, technology is coming. Let's keep our eye on it. Let's, let's, embrace, let's embrace the technology that makes sense to physiotherapy. And, and yeah, let, let's be especially where, uh, let's, be, let's be attuned to what activities a physiotherapist performs today, what, what will be replaced, augmented, and immune to disruption from those technologies. That's not, in my mind, that's something to keep, something to keep an eye on. And then you know the 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 shift in in um, the shift in mandate in, in Ontario that came with the latest election. You know we have a conservative government in place now. Um, they're consistent. They're two consistent slogans, which I think all health professionals should be paying attention to because you know these this party will be in power for at least the next four to five years, if not the next eight to nine. Um, you know they're they're a party for the people, and Ontario is open for business. So. Um, uh, you know, what is for the people signal? Uh, does for the pe people signal even even more, um, you know, needing to pay even more attention to the to the patient voice and the and patient centered care and uh, patient advocacy groups as we as we uh, as we move forward with our with our important work? Uh, and then, you know, Ontario is open for business. What does that What does that mean? I mean, we've already seen some some small changes like uh, you know beer beer and alcohol soon to be available and. <laughs> And corner stores more broadly, uh, more broadly available, which you know speaks to their overall health agenda. So they're they're uh, circumventing a well-known liquor control device where we're limiting the locations where liquor and alcohol can be available can have positive public health effects. They're they're um, circumventing those findings with a pro-business stance, which you know there there are pros and cons to all policy changes, but they you know they made a very clear public health-related signal with that one decision. Um, so what other decisions are coming our way? You know, um, uh, are we, 
are we moving, you know, this is, this is way down the road, but who knows? Like, are we moving to, to less fear around a multi-payer universal system like, like exists in Germany? You know, like we talked about in class, you know, Germany has this interesting, imperfect, it's an interesting and imperfect system where instead of it being a single payer, pure single payer system, like, uh, like Britain, uh, they're, they're closer to Canada where some healthcare is covered by, uh, sickness funds, not-for-profit sickness, sickness funds, and then other healthcare is covered by for-profit insurance companies, uh, you know, similar to what we have in Ontario and Canada right now. So, you know, are we going to move away from this fear uh, in Canada and Ontario of, of a multi-tiered uh, healthcare system, even though we have one now, to being more realistic about what we can provide with the public purse and just really embracing this idea of equitable access to care, which I think is what Canadians and Ontarians care about. I'm not sure if they care about who's paying for it. I think they care that, that we all have equal access to care. And the fear of a two-tiered or three-tiered or four-tiered system is that people are going to wait longer uh, for service if they don't have the, the Cadillac insurance. But there's nothing saying that we can't have this interesting mix of payment uh, of payers like they do in Germany. So I just wanted to touch on that because, you know, that Ontario, we could be looking at an experiment in, uh, in the face. You know, we're, we're in a $6 billion deficit, um, a pretty strong structural deficit in Ontario. So it's going to be hard for the Ford administration to fix it right away. So they might turn to some interesting payment models uh, early on their mandate. Who knows? But it's something that we need to stay attuned to, especially in Ontario. Definitely. And um, you've brought, brought up amazing points about all three of your themes, about the consolidation uh, having an impact on the future and fostering amazing collaborations and um, with technology taking over. It is inevitable that technology will continue to evolve, as we've even seen with just the example of an iPhone coming from the first one to now we have the 10th one already and how much technology even came in that sector. But there are many more applications in the healthcare sector as well. And um, definitely about uh, local policy changes like what Ontarians have just gone through. And I'm sure um, the healthcare spectrum across the world, like you mentioned in Germany, other European countries and uh, in North America in general will continue to impact our decisions and the outlook of our healthcare. And we could probably have a podcast episode <laughs> on each of those topics, but <laughs> for the interests of time, I just wanted to shift the focus back onto you in terms of um, if you could tell us a little bit more about your role as a OPA president and what kind of things you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah. So the, um, the, the Ontario Physiotherapy Association is a, um, and the Canadian, you know, we're a branch of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. It really is a, um, uh, it's, it's a, getting involved with the association is a, is a great way to, to pay it forward, so to speak. And, and, a, and a great way to, uh, in my mind, um, contribute to, um, something bigger than yourself, you know, to put, to put it very simply, um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the opportunity came my way again, kind of right place, right time that I went to school, uh, went to McMaster to, with a former uh, president of the OPA, Chris, Chris Wynn. Uh, he's up in Thunder Bay and, and he, he gave me a call back uh, in 2011 and, you know, turned me on to the fact that they were looking for a few board members and thought I might be interested and, and walked me through what it would look like and, and, uh, and, and decided to put my name forward and, and served on the board of the OPA for, for four years. And, uh, and, um, it's a really, you know, an association where we have close to 60% membership um, of the of the physiotherapists in Ontario. I, I know it might not sound like that high of a number, but when you have other professional associations, you know, I won't name them, but uh, but other professional associations and other, both in Canada and the U.S. that are struggling to have, you know, a 20, 30% membership, close to 60 is is um, is a, is a really is a really nice mandate, and it uh, and it really um, it uh, it helps focus focus you on, on on what you're trying to achieve, and really, what we're trying to achieve as as an association is is um, is to ensure that uh, um, you know that the professional voice is heard loud and clear. And my, you know, you asked me for my, what my one of my priorities. It's going to sound like like jargon, but it's uh, 
I'm hoping that it's not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's this idea <laughs> that we as a profession have both a uniform, unified and amplified voice across the province. So, um, you know, we have some other concrete results, like making sure that uh, our membership numbers rise, making, you know, making sure that we, uh, I mentioned earlier that we have as many different voices at different important decision-making tables as we can, you know, continue to strengthen our, our interaction conference and, and, and continue our, our really important work to make sure that the, that the scope expansion promises that were made to the physiotherapy profession back in 2009 are follow, followed through with. Um, but, um, but really what it comes down to in my mind is, is, uh, is, is the, the stronger and more unified and more amplified our voice as a profession the better off we're going to we're going to be uh, as physiotherapists, and then and then and then of course the the, the better off uh, uh, Ontarians will be because they'll have access to uh, to uh, to physiotherapy um, in their communities. Um, so by unified, I, I just mean just this idea that uh, you know I, I've never seen the sense of of striking into factions you know almost immediately after finishing school. I'm a, I'm a public practice physiotherapist. I'm a private practice physiotherapist. I'm an MSK person. I'm a neuro person. You know, like these, these, um, these uh, differences and specializations can definitely make us stronger. But I, 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 um, I think sometimes they get in the way of us uh, having a, having a unified voice and speaking, speaking as a, as a, as a unified profession. Then the amplification, I already spoke about that. You know, how can we, how can we, uh, modify our advocacy strategy so that uh, instead of us speaking by ourselves as a profession, how do we, how can we partner and collaborate with other health professions, with patients, with, with, uh, with people um, uh, who have been, who have benefited from physiotherapy to make sure that, uh, that the, that the positive health outcomes that a physiotherapist brings to his or her community can be heard loud and clear across the province. So that's, um, I mean, you know, that in a nutshell, in a very long winded nutshell, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> Kind of what we're doing the next couple of years. No, that's great, Alan. Um, you mentioned about really being a part of something bigger than yourself and really kind of giving back to community. Um, there are many benefits for joining and volunteering for your professional association. Can you name some of these benefits? Yeah, I mean, the it's a, it's an interesting question, you know, because there are the um, there are the the tangible the tangible benefits. You know, the access to a to um, uh, um, a well-known and, and well-regarded insurance program, um, access to all the, all the resources and all the, as a, as an example, you know, the, the new graduate toolkit, which I'm sure all three of you are exposed to that, that you get access to and then access to the OPA staff as you start your career, um, you know, through the, through mm -hmm. the uh, Canadian physiotherapy association, uh, access to the, that really interesting, uh, platform that Embody is running on our behalf, uh, where, where you have access to the, all that, all the really interesting post post degree professional development opportunities. There's all kinds of, you know, those are kind of the, the membership services benefits that uh, people often look at when they're, when they're signing up for membership, which I think is important. And we have to continue as an association to, uh, to figure out how to evolve those services. I mean, there's also to me, um, uh, um, there is a component of, of giving back and there's also a component of being part of a, of a broader collective. Um, and, uh, and, and where, where does that, where does that mindset, this idea that I'm part of a, a profession that I'm not there, not only am I, do I have the support of this professional association when I need it, but I'm there to support others um, either actively through volunteering or quite frankly, passively through, signing up for my membership year over year to, to give, to give voice uh, a stronger voice to the profession as they, as they go in and advocate on, on behalf of the, on behalf of the profession. So to me, it's this, it's this important combination of the, uh, of, you know, that transactional uh, membership benefits that, that any association needs to be really good at and the more relationship uh, long view, long haul strategic view of membership where, you know, again, we're stronger together. And, uh, you know, I'm going to say it quite frankly, if I walk into a, a meeting with a, with a minister or a deputy minister, and I have a 15% membership rate as a president, do you think he or she is going to listen to me? Or do you think they're going to listen to me with the, the, the one with the 85% membership rate, you know, to, to put a really fine point on it. I know that's fairly crude. And maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud in the podcast. But I think, uh, <laughs> that is that is that, that, that's, that, that probably that probably should be part should be part of a consideration of a 
of a health professional when they're when they're thinking about uh, uh, joining a professional association. Not the only not the only uh, aspect by any means, um, uh, but I'm, I would I would invite people to think think that that um, could be part of the decision making. Alan, you've mentioned some of the great uh, benefits associated with your association, and uh, one of them was volunteerism, which we quite frankly talked with many physiotherapists previously about, and it's a really integral part of our profession in order to advance it forward and really make sure that um, the outside of physiotherapy world hears about our message. So, um, and we look at volunteerism as kind of a habit where it's important uh, for you and for us as well to give back and um, really benefit the people around us. Uh, to add on to that, we were wondering what are some of your habits that you've developed over the years that you think are crucial for your success? Interesting question. I, I um, The Power of Habit, it's not, it's not my favorite book, but it's one of my favorite books. I've forgotten his last name, uh, but he's a New York Times guy. So it's called The Power of Habit. And that's a fantastic book that actually goes through the, the science behind why habits work. And he gives evidence-based uh, um uh, evidence-based suggestions around how to start your habits. Uh, so anyway, just as an aside, it's a fantastic book. Um, I don't know. I would say the two or three habits that have the broadest impact would be journaling, number one. Um, so I journal every day mm-hmm. to start my work day. Uh, I, uh, I'll get right into it, actually. It's, de- it's developed over time. I, it originally started as a way to improve my writing skills. I found that I was living in um, PowerPoint world and I was, I was only thinking and writing in, in PowerPoint slides and bullets mm-hmm. and I was having a hard mm-hmm. time writing and thinking in full sentences. And so that's, that's where it came from. And it started about four or five years ago. And, and then it, 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 it moved into, okay, I'm going to start running a bunch of blogs. I'm going to write a book and all this, all this stuff. But, but I, um, so then what I started to do was I started to track, my journaling and I started to um, uh, make sure that I uh, you're going to, you're going to laugh. I guarantee I, I rate, I rate my journal entries after, after each one and I, <laughs> I, make, a, some comments, I make some comments about what I'm going to do the next day. So anyway, so I just, I've created some structure on the journaling. So it became less about just writing and it came more about quite, quite frankly, building habits and, uh, and, and, and trying to build my skill set when it came to writing. Now, I haven't written the book yet, so I don't know how, uh, how, how, uh, how that's going to produce into results, but that's definitely a habit that's helpful. And then running, definitely running. Um, that's building, that builds up my I don't feel like it muscle, you know, like that. It's, it's raining, it's mm-hmm. minus 20, it's, it's plus 30, like it's been recently here in Toronto. And just uh, <laughs> and signing up for signing up for half marathons and marathons. I don't I don't break any, uh, you know, uh, forty to forty five year old records with my with my half marathon or marathon running. <laughs> uh, but it's something you know it's something, to, something that keeps keeps my habit on track, right? You sign up for something. I don't know about, about the three of you, yeah. but you sign up you sign up for something. I'm more likely to uh, to carry through. So that. I'm giving it a specific running example, but that probably carries through to other things that I do too. So those would be the two that stand out. My journal writing and, and running would be two habits that have been around for at least the past five to six years. And these are amazing habits. Definitely with the running, you're building up your willpower, which I've read in uh, some book. I don't remember. The author was saying you have a certain amount of willpower points to start the day. And then as you go through the day, they slowly reduce, reduce, reduce. And, uh, if you have lower willpower, you're likely to make choices that are uh, not as beneficial for you. While when you have high willpower, you're more likely to make healthier choices, uh, ones that produce more energy for you and more productivity throughout the day. Um, I just had a follow-up question in terms of the journaling as well, because a lot of authors in habit books talk about that as well as an effective way. And there is research that if you write something down, you're actually more likely to do it. So what are the things you're writing in your journal, if you don't mind sharing? Is it certain goals, uh, certain to-do lists, or just uh, journaling your observations throughout the day? Oh, you know, it's great. You're asking great. All of the above. 
all of the above. I actually, when I'm, when I'm on point and I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm on point every day. That, that's why I, I mean, again, you're going to laugh at me. That's why I, that's why I do give my, so the reason why I give my, I, the reason why I track my journal entries, cause I was noticing things. So part of what I wanted to do is I wanted to start. If I started my journal entry on time, then that would set me set myself up for the rest of the day. So believe it or not, I track whether I, I, I started my journal entry on time. And what I find is that if I'm on a roll and I'm doing really well that week, I have a bunch of yeses. And if I'm in a funk, if I'm not doing well, it's, I have a bunch of no's. So it just it's a visual cue for me that I, how am I doing with my journal writing? And it's kind of an everything, 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 right? So how I'm showing up around my journal writing, chances are I'm mm-hmm. showing up that way around my, my everyday work, right? So um, mm-hmm. uh, a practice that I've stopped, but now temporarily, but now that you've asked me this question, I'm going to start again. So I thank you as I would set... I would set um, I would set a um, a journal a journal theme that that day. So I would actually everything you just described. I've 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 journaled on that that day. So my general observations is the way I feel that day. I have a very specific thing I want to write about when it comes to the OPA, um, all of the above. Um, but what I and then I also I also would track what I was writing about to keep to to keep me honest. And that because what I found what I found I fell into. Sometimes I just journal about whatever I was feeling, whatever I felt like that day, which is fine. If that, if your goal is just to get, get your thoughts down on paper, but I had, I had broader goals than that for my journal writing. So that's, I, I did all of those things you were describing. Yeah. And that's funny actually that you mentioned that because I actually asked the PTPC boys a couple of days ago about how to improve my own productivity. And they mentioned that, you know, writing things down and really outlining what you have to do uh, throughout the day really helped them improve their efficiency in uh, completing tasks. So we're just going to change the topic here. And on the topic of books, um, you mentioned the power of habit already. What is one other book that you recommend to our listeners in order to help improve their business acumen? Yeah, I would, I would say anything, uh, anything by Clayton Christensen, um, you know, specifically, uh, the innovators prescription is the one that deals with healthcare specifically, but, uh, and the innovators dilemma was his first book might be a little dated these days. I haven't read it in years, but it's just, you know, uh, talk to the, talk to the three of you in the, in the U of T class about this many times. It's the, you know, he's, he is one of those writers that has been writing about innovation for some time and kind of has these interesting ways of, of framing and, and packaging innovation into easy to understand frameworks. Um, so uh, I know a lot of writers have kind of um, taken him to task lately that his, that his theories are not and his frameworks are not comprehensive enough. They're not up to date. They're, uh, he's losing touch with what's happening now in, in a new tech world, which is all fine. I think that's all part of the dialogue and, and uh, it's important to build off each other's ideas when it comes to something as fluid as innovation. But he, to me, he, he gives a really interesting framework and groundwork for, for innovation and disruptive innovation. And, and he, he also, um, you know, you've heard me talk about the job, you know, this job to be done theory. Um, uh, he, he is one of the, one of the first authors and writers. I think there were a few of them who all kind of came up with the theory at the same time, or, or, or who were all thinking about this, this idea of the, the job to be done theory. He, he talks about that very clearly and succinctly as well. So it's a nice, it's a nice start, you know, to reflect back to where we were talking about earlier when, you know, um, reflect earlier to, to the activities that could be, you know, replaced, augmented or immune to disruption. If you, if you look at, if you look at that activities as a, through a job to be done lens. So in other words, a client is coming in, they have a certain job that they can't do themselves and they're paying you or they're, or they're, they want you to help them complete that job. Uh, if you look at those the activities that a physiotherapist does um, through that job to be done lens, in my view, it's a, it's um, you're, you're ahead of the game. You know, one of you was asking about the, or made some interesting points about technology and the, the, the example that I bring up with the tech people here in Toronto is, you know, back when I was in school in 2001, we spent, I think your the three of you, your heads would spin if you knew how much time we spent on gate analysis, you know? So here we were not videotaping mm-hmm. anybody, not videotaping anybody. Okay. So we're all standing there with a pad and p- pen paper. And this is in 2001 pad and paper in our uh, pad and pencil in our hands, trying to describe what we're, what we're all seeing subjectively as somebody walks down the, walks down the hall, you know? So whether it probably mm-hmm. exists already, but you know, what's <laughs> stopping, what's stopping somebody from develop or not what's stopping, but how soon will we have an app? Where not only do you, of course, you can video the person walking and, and there's some sort of algorithm or, or AI within the app that analyzes that gate, 
but it can it can not only do the analysis, but it can also spit out a diagnosis and potential intervention plan. Like think about that, right? So if you have enough, if you have enough infrastructure back in there, you have some sort of you know uh, um, you know millions of data points that, that's being collected into some sort of into some sort of database. What's so the the job to be done that that client could care less about your big fancy uh, gate assessment analysis. All they want to do is they want to know what's wrong and how can they get better, and that and those those key activities the the the, the observation, the diagnosis, the prescription, key activities that a physiotherapist do. I mean, what's stopping uh, an algorithm from doing that now? I mean, a tech person have to tell me what's stopping an algorithm from doing that right now. But are we that far away from that happening? So when you look at when you look at things through Christensen's lens of the job to be done theory, it, it becomes very, it becomes easier, I think, to see where the innovations uh, uh, lie for physiotherapists to really have some positive impact. And uh, Christensen is definitely uh, an author that we've heard from you and uh, we'll definitely give uh, his books a read just, <laughs> we're busy uh, improving our habits in the meantime, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll definitely get around to um, reading about some of the ideas he has and uh, the concept of the job to be done really uh, makes it easy to put things into patient-centered care because uh, it helps you look at things from the patient's perspective. All they care about is um, how do I get healthier if they're, if they're injured, right? And um, how can you, how can a physiotherapist help them fix that issue, right? So it really puts a nice perspective and helps to look at it from a patient's uh, perspective or point of view. But Alan, it has been an amazing podcast. We've learned a lot of things from you and uh, thank you so much for coming on. I know you took some time out of your busy schedule. Um, we were just wondering where can we find you on social media or over email um, in case people have questions for you or uh, they want to get in touch with you. Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. So that, that's one way to find me. And then the other one is my handle on Twitter is the armchair PT. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I, haven't really, I haven't really developed that brand as best as I could, but that's, uh, you know, I was going somewhere with that. And then, um, <laughs> and then my, uh, uh, my email address is, is, is my name at Ryerson.ca. So it's alan.mcdonald at Ryerson.ca. Awesome. So thank you so much. And um, we really look forward to sharing this podcast with our listeners as well. And uh, we might have to get you on a couple more episodes just <laughs> to talk about the specific uh topics surrounding our healthcare as well. No, that'd be so fun. Much. That'd be fun. I, I appreciate the uh, time and uh, take care of yourself. Thank you everyone for tuning in to the PTBC podcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode today. Please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at our website, ptbusinesscorner.com. Feel free to send us a message on social media or email us at info at ptbusinesscorner.com. See you next time. <laughs>